all right, tonight we're going to finish chapter one, Lord willing, and um, here's the big statement for tonight. We were born again for purity and brotherly love through the living word. And um, if you've become a Christian, you know that this is, if you look at the purple arrow here, you know this is basically the way that you came to know the Lord and how you got to where you are today. In a very basic sense, this is true for all of us, the message was preached, the gospel was communicated to you in some way, some form, some fashion, and at some point, through that message preached, you were born again. Born again, and we find out in 1 Peter chapter 1, all the way back in verse 2, that we were born again to obedience. Not born again through obedience, but born again to obedience. So you heard the message preached, you were born again, and now this life subsequently because of the new birth, because you've become a Christian, this life now results in submission to God, worship of God, and purity as you're set apart for God and sanctification. That's the view for the Christian. That's the goal. That's the Christian life that is set before us. And what we find tonight is this is all toward also loving one another. We're submitting, worshiping, being set apart as pure for God with a view toward loving one another. We were born again for purity and brotherly love through the living word. And what Peter does in our passage tonight is instead of starting here and walking through and saying, the message was preached to you, you were born again, and now this is happening, in 22 to 25, the verses we're going to look at tonight, he starts, that is no good, he starts right here with the imploring of us to love one another, and he says, because of these things, and he works backwards. He says, love one another. Well, why? Because you've been set apart for purity. You've been born again to obedience because the message was preached to you. All right, so that's the way Peter structures the passage tonight, and let's look at that together. Verses 22 to 25. Would someone read that for us? First Peter 1, 22 to 25. Go ahead, Joseph. All right, so you see how that's structured that way, where you have in verse 22 that you've purified your souls by obedience to the truth, and since you have been born again, love one another from a pure heart, um, and then goes back to you were born again through the word that was preached to you. Okay, so I hope that makes a little bit of sense for you, and hopefully make more sense as we go through it this this evening. Um, So I'm actually going to start here, though. And I'm going to work through the way that we've experienced it. I'm going to start with the message preached through the Word of God, being born again, and then resulting in this life, okay? So I'm going to go in that order as we look at the passage tonight. And the first thing I want us to look at is this Word that was preached to us. You see that the very last of the chapter. This Word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's see if we can define this, what, what the Word was. And let's just get some ideas out. What's, what's the word that was preached to us? Okay, right, yeah, we, we know that uh, the gospel message is the vehicle that God has chosen that, by which people would be saved, right? They hear the good news and they're saved. Um, what's interesting, though, is that Peter here doesn't spell that out for us, perhaps as clearly as we would expect or like as students of the Bible as we look at this. And we see in verse 23, he brings up the concept of the Word, that we've been born again through the imperishable, living, 
abiding or enduring Word of God. We see he's quoting Isaiah, verse 25. It says, the Word of the Lord remains forever. And then we see at the end of verse 25, and this Word is the good news that was preached to you, or and this is the Word that was preached to you, however your version may have it, your translation may have it. When you, when you see that he's quoting Isaiah there, all the way back in Isaiah 40, Isaiah didn't have the gospel message as we have it today, right? I mean, he, he had a lot. You read Isaiah 53, and it sounds a lot like the message that we have today because he was a prophet, and God used him to give us amazing prophecies about the coming Messiah. But when Isaiah was speaking those things, but the word of the Lord remains forever, uh, he didn't have in view the gospel message as we would have it today. And so we have to work through this a little bit. And the first thing that I want you to, to know as we try to nail down what was this word is that it is the God-given message. Okay, so regardless of how we want to label it, gospel or whatever, um, it's a God-given message, isn't it? The word that was preached to us, the word by which we were born again, that message was God-given. It was authored by God, it was ordained by God, it was given by God. And the context of 1 Peter 1, particularly this last section that we're going through, is the conversion of these people, the Christians who were in Asia Minor. Look back in verse 12 when he was talking about the prophets in the Old Covenant and how they were searching for when these things would come about, God was giving prophecies through them, and they wanted to know when were these things going to happen. Well, it says in verse 12 that it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And so even those Old Testament prophecies, like the ones from Isaiah, they are stored up and reserved for us today living in the new covenant who are living after the time of Jesus' coming that we might be saved through the word of God, the God-given message that has converted us. It's the good news that's rooted in God's ordained message. And we have to believe too that as Peter's thinking about their conversion that he's got in mind those things which are of first importance, the gospel message. Do you remember in uh, first, first Corinthians 15 when Paul says, when I, was, when I met you or when I was with you, something to that nature, he says, I delivered to you that which was of first importance, and then he lists a couple things. Do you remember what he says? What were the things that are of first importance? That Jesus, okay, he says that Jesus died according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again according to the Scriptures. Good. So, as you think about the message, the testimony of the Word of God that leads to our conversion, what are those elements? They're the elements that are of first importance, that Jesus died according to the Scriptures, He was buried, and He rose again according to the Scriptures, right? So, you have to think that Peter's got this on his mind. It's the God-given message, and it is the Word of God. This isn't just a really great opinion. This isn't a lifestyle choice. Peter's not saying that this lifestyle choice was chosen by you, and that was a great idea on your, on your part. It's not what he's saying. He's talking about a very powerful Word, so powerful that it's called the good news, not some good news, not a little bit of good news, not kind of okay news, <laughs> the good news, 
and it was preached to you, you were born again through it. It's the authoritative and life-giving message of God, the message that imparts life. How many messages do that? I know my messages don't do that, (laughs) but the Word of God does, doesn't it? The Word of God imparts life. And let's look at these adjectives that are used in uh, verse 23. What do we learn about the Word of God from verse 23? It is what? Incorruptible or imperishable, right. It cannot be destroyed or corrupted. What else? It's everlasting. Wow, that's an amazing word. That's a word that we think of when we think of God's nature, right? God is from everlasting to everlasting. You are the everlasting God. That's a song. Maybe we could sing that one on Wednesday nights. <laughs> um, he is everlasting. His word is everlasting. One more. Living. Good. So yeah, living and abiding or everlasting or enduring, those two words put together. Okay? So those are some really amazing adjectives that will... Um, look at more in just a moment. But I do want us to see where this message originated in Peter's mind, and that's back in Isaiah 40. So keep your finger here, but turn back to the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 40, and let's look at what Peter was quoting in the Old Testament. Because Peter, of course, was not the first one to declare the amazing nature of the Word of God, but the New Covenant writers, of course, leaned Heavily on the Old Covenant writers, and here's an example. Isaiah chapter 40, and it's the first eight verses. Would someone like to read those verses for us? Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 8. Who would read that for the class? Go ahead, Stacy. No, you'll get the next one. (laughs) All right. So something you might not know about the book of Isaiah, this is a really amazing thing, is that Isaiah is... 66 chapters. Can you think of anything else that's comprised of 66 parts? The Bible itself. How many are in the Old Testament? 39. Good. Dean's very unenthusiastic, but he's correct. Good. (laughs) 39. So that leaves how many in the New Testament? 27. (laughs) She's first. Good job, Sunday school teacher. Uh, So you got 39 and 27. Now, Isaiah can be viewed, the whole book of Isaiah, when you consider the chapters, it can be viewed like a mini snapshot of the Bible itself. Because chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah, if you've ever tried to read it, it's kind of depressing. (laughs) It's hard to get through. It's God's condemnation on everybody, on Israel and on all the nations, that everyone's just bad. (laughs) Everyone's evil. They're declared sinful and judgment is pronounced for them. But then, Stacy, what was the first word in chapter 40? Comfort. Now, there's a word you haven't heard yet in Isaiah in this sense, comfort. So, just like the Old Testament, it ends with basically people being under the law and being condemned under the law. You've got Jesus coming in the new covenant. And that's who Isaiah begins to talk about starting in chapter 40. How can he have a message of comfort? Well, he's going to talk about the coming Messiah. And as he gets into this message about the coming Messiah, we have the great statement in verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So this is a passage of comfort for distressed Israel at that time. Israel was going through many things. The Assyrians were attacking And later on, of course, you've got with Judah, the Babylonians were coming to attack them. 
and take their, take their people, take their land. And so you have uh, destruction and judgment coming upon Israel, and yet there's a message of comfort that's being pre- preached to them because of the word of the Lord and the coming Messiah. And you can imagine in the first century, these people in, who are recipients of Peter's letter, where are they living, by the way? Peter's letter, his recipients, his audience, where are they living? In Asia Minor. And why are they there? Yes, persecution had dispersed them. So, you can imagine in their circumstance, where they're dealing with all kinds of stressful things like judgment from the world, people seeking to persecute them, people seeking to harm them, that they too need a message of comfort. And here they're being reminded in 1 Peter chapter 1, the end of the chapter, of the greatness of our God and His Word, which brings them comfort. And we see again in chapter 1, verse 23, back in 1 Peter, that the Word is imperishable, incorruptible. It cannot be corrupted or destroyed. It's a living Word, it says. That means it has life. The Word has life. Hebrews 4.12, it's a great memory verse. The Word of God is sharper than what? Okay, because it is active and living. Okay, good. So, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, and it can discern between the thoughts and the intents of the heart, can't it? The Word is living. What other message, what other book is a living book like the Bible is a living book? The Word of God. And it is abiding, enduring, or everlasting. It remains forever. This is pretty amazing, isn't it? You can trust in the Word of God. It's not been corrupted. It's incorruptible. It's impossible to corrupt it. (laughs) That's what Peter's saying. It's living. It imparts life to you. Isn't that amazing? That through this Word, you can have life. These dead bones can live again. And that it's enduring. It remains forever. There have been so many people throughout history who have tried to squelch the Word of God, who have tried to get rid of the Word of God. Can't do it. Can't do it. Because God's in charge of preserving it, isn't He? And here He has declared, in other places as well, it is imperishable. Nothing can happen to it. So let's think through the implications of this. Um, the Word, which has life in and of itself, which, has, which is imperishable, incorruptible, enduring, everlasting, it imparts to us that which is like it. It gives us life through the Word, because it says in our text today that we've been born again through the Word, right? What kind of life do we have through the Word? And everlasting? imperishable, incorruptible, right? All these words we've been saying, that's what our eternal life is. It is eternal. It is everlasting. It is enduring and abiding, and it's incorruptible. Nothing can happen to it. If you imagine the most beautiful, majestic flower, whatever that might be for you, just there it is, perfect, picture-perfect moment for that flower. Beautiful work of God, but it's also going to die, isn't it? (laughs) it's going to wither up and die, blow away, be done with. Your eternal life is always in full bloom. The life that you have by being born again through the Word, incorruptible. Always just the way God has designed it. And no one can touch it, no one can take it away, no one can twist it, change it. It's there, it abides, it remains forever. And 
that's just an amazing thought when we consider the life that we have in Christ through the Word of God and knowing as we go back to the Word of God, the Word that was preached to us by which we were initially saved, as we go back to the Word of God, we can continually trust it to continue imparting life to us. Not that we're getting more and more eternal life. You have 100% eternal life from the day you're saved. But you're renewed day by day, aren't you? Hopefully you experience that. Being renewed in the Word of God as it continues to impart life to us, and this life reflects the Word itself in the sense that it is living. It's a, it's a true life, and it's imperishable, and it's everlasting. So thoughts on the message preached, the, the Word that was preached. Thoughts or questions on that? Miss Diana. I'll let your son tell you. So if it's compared to that, No, no, that's a good, that's a very good question. Yeah. Um, so we, we start to think of the parameters of this, um, and maybe I could rephrase the question for those who maybe didn't hear. So essentially, if the Word of God is imperishable, what do we make of perhaps certain, diff- certain Bible translations that do not accurately represent what God has said. Um, so as we begin to think of the parameters on all this, we know that just because the Word is incorruptible, that doesn't mean it's untwistable. Because people twist the Scriptures all the time, don't they? People use the Scriptures for selfish gain all the time. So that goes on. That doesn't, when God says that it is imperishable, this Word that He gives, He's not saying that no one is ever going to use it wrongly. Because in His wisdom, providence, goodness, sovereignty, God has allowed people to still use it wrongly. And He's getting glory through all this in His sovereign ways, okay? Um, So that's the first thing to know. But when it comes to translations, like we'll use the message, for example, which isn't a translation, and this is important for people to know. There are versions of the Bible out there called translations and some called uh, paraphrases, Translations are sometimes called versions too, okay? So either translations or versions, and then paraphrases. The message isn't a translation. Anytime someone says the message translation, you say, oh, it's actually a paraphrase. (laughs) They weren't using Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic scriptures to make the message Bible. They were taking English and paraphrasing something that was already in English. Um, So you take the message Bible, for example, I don't recommend using it, Uh, I don't find much value in it. I don't think it is the Word of God, and I would hope Eugene Peterson, the guy who made it, would say it's not the Word of God, but I don't know what he would say about that. Um, He's dead now, so I know what he would say now. But uh, I, I don't think it should ever be used as a Bible. Maybe there's an instance where it could be used as a commentary alongside a faithful translation. I don't know. But um, you look at something like that, and what do you make of it? Well, Depends on the motives of the person, I guess. Perhaps Eugene Peterson was a conniving person using it to twist the Scriptures. I don't think that was his heart, but there have been people who have done that, like the New World Translation of the Bible, Jehovah's Witnesses. It, you know what they do with John 1.1? 1, 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, is what they say. So it's just a translation, right? And they just translated it more accurately. Well, no, they haven't. They've twisted the Word of God. So, um, there are well-meaning Christians out there who make bad translations of Scriptures. 
There are people out there who seek to twist the Scriptures. We don't know the motives of people's hearts. We don't know who is truly born again and who's not. Um, Our duty is to stick with what we trust as accurate translations of the uh, scriptural heritage, the the textual tradition is what they say in academic circles, Uh, because we do have lots and lots of manuscripts, and we, we can know if our English translation is faithful to what we have or not, and so we just need to stick with what's faithful to it. And the other things, God knows why He's allowed those things to happen. But there are multiple good translations of the, uh, the Scriptures, just like there are multiple bad translations of the Scriptures. There's no one good translation uh, that, or one perfect translation. There are a variety of good translations of the Bible, and there are a variety of bad translations of the Bible. So we have to rely on people who know a little bit about that stuff to be able to direct us on that. Did that meandering set of paragraphs answer your question to any degree? Okay, all right. All right. I'm not going to ask for another question after that. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I, that was a very good question. Thank you. Um, so, the, the word preached. Now, I want to talk about being born again through the word. Let's see that again in the text. Verse 23 You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. You have been born again through the word of God, is what the text says. Now, if you have been diligently memorizing every verse of 1 Peter, like I know most of you have been, (laughs) you're going to say, wait a second, I thought we were born again through the resurrection. Look back up at verse 3. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, it says, according to God's great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, uh, what are we to make of this? You were born again through the resurrection, and then later in the very same chapter, you were born again through the Word of God. How do you start to reconcile these things in your mind? Let's get some ideas out there. Okay, how so? Good, yeah. Yes. Yeah, as we were just thinking through a few moments ago about that which is of first importance, Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15. This is what was of first importance. And you think about the content of the good news. Is the content of the good news your preferred method of baptism? No. Is the content of the good news what you believe about the end times? No. Is the content of the good news if you believe people still speak in tongues or not? No. The content of the good news is Jesus died according to the Scriptures, He was buried, and He rose again according to the Scriptures. That's the heart. That's the gospel. All right? So, as we think about the Word of God and being born again through the Word of God, and this is the good news that was preached to you, verse 25, we do have to, as Mandy was just saying, see these things as being one of the same. What is the word that was preached to us? That Jesus died and rose again. So we were born again through the word. We were born again through the resurrection. It's all the same concept because the word testifies of the resurrection. It's the gospel message. And the resurrection is essential to the good news. It says in verse 25, this word is the good news in the ESV. This word is the good news that was preached to you. Um, In the Greek, it has the word 
the verb form of euangelion, meaning good news, to preach good news. Okay? This word is for us to believe and to be saved by and to obey. That's, that's the big idea. Is that good in your mind? Maybe I didn't make it enough of a problem to be reconciled, that you were already reconciled before I tried to reconcile it. But does that make sense to you, that we're born again through the Word, we're born again through the resurrection? Same concept, right? Okay. Well, let's look at this in a couple of places in the New Testament. Rex, you want to get Romans 10, 5 to 17? Romans chapter 10, starting at verse 5. And then can I have someone get James 1? James chapter 1, Jerry? Verses 16 to 25. James 1, 16 to 25. 5 to 17. So if you guys can, go ahead and turn. Let's look at both these passages together. Romans 10, verses 5 to 17. And I want you to see here how through the Word of God we are saved. Because Peter's talking about this in uh, a couple of different ways, that through the Word of God we're born again, and through the Word of God we are sanctified. And we have that testimony in the rest of the New Testament as well. So Romans 10, starting at verse 5, let's see how the, ro- the Word of God is how we are saved. Starting at verse 5, go ahead, Rex. All right, we'll stop there. So, according to that passage that Rex just read for us, how are people saved? How are people born again? Really, Paul was talking about the message, huh? So now, Dean, since you give the sarcastic answer, now you've got to give the real answer, all right? So how, how are people saved, according to Romans 10? Hearing and then subsequently believing, right? Faith comes by hearing. Hearing through the Word, the Word of Christ. And Paul uses the word saved. Paul doesn't use the term born again in any of his letters like Peter and John do. But you see at the end of verse 10 that it's with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's Paul's terminology here. How are people saved? They hear the Word, and they believe, and through that faith in the message preached, they are saved. It's not about works righteousness. Paul's whole argument in the book of Romans is righteousness is by faith. We have the righteousness of God that weighs down on us as sinners. Here we are condemned by the law of God, the righteous law of God. And then we have righteousness revealed to us apart from the law in the person and work of Jesus Christ that if we have faith in Him, we are righteous. We're set free from the law and we're under grace. It's not about our works. It's about the righteousness that comes by faith. So how do people come to a born-again experience? Well, it says in verse 17, through the Word or by the Word. That's how people come to faith is by the Word. So as we think of Peter talking about being born again through the Word of God, you see a parallel here, I hope, to Romans 10. Same idea, the Word going out, people believing, people being saved or born again through believing the message preached. Thoughts, questions on that before we go to James? Makes sense? Okay, James 1. Jerry, if you want to read 16 to 25 for us, James 1. And now, as we go to James, we're, we're seeing not only have we been saved by the Word of God, but now we are sanctified through the Word of God. 
This is how we are set apart in purity through the Word of God. Okay, go ahead, 16 to 25. All right, so let's look at verse 18 again real quick. How were we brought forth by God? By the Word, okay, of His own will. Whose will? God's will. He brought us, who's us? Believers. He brought us forth by the Word, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures, all right, and Where is that word found now according to verse 21? Where is it? Yeah, it's implanted. It's in us. God, having brought us forth through it, has put it in us. Okay, this is New Covenant language. In Ezekiel 36 and other places in the Old Testament where the New Covenant was prophesied, He says He's going to write the law on their hearts, and we've already started. We've got a foot in that camp, okay? where the new covenant has begun because Jesus has inaugurated it with His blood. And we have been brought in, and so we are participants in the new covenant, and we've been brought forth by the Word of God. We've been sprinkled clean with water, and we have the Word implanted. And then, what's our task now? Verse 22. (laughs) To do it. Okay. So you've been saved through the Word. The Word has been placed in you. And who else is in you? Holy Spirit. Okay. And so here you are now as a believer to be doers of the Word. Subsequently, from being born again, submission, worship, and purity with a view toward loving one another. Okay. Um, We are saved by the Word of God and we're sanctified by the Word of God. We embrace the Word implanted to obey Jesus. This is the process of sanctification. Thoughts on James 1? Questions on James 1? Okay, you guys don't have a lot of questions tonight. We just needed one. (laughs) One question. (laughs) Yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, it's brought to bear on our day-to-day life. Be doers of the Word. That's it. Okay, let's go back to 1 Peter 1, and let's finish up by talking about verse 22, this soul purification, obedience, brotherly love stuff, okay? The Word has been preached to us, we were born again through it, and subsequently we're set apart for purification, for sanctification, to be holy in the world. I'll read verses 22 and 23 again, just to remind us of the context here. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. So there's an active aspect to this. I I hope that catches your eye. I hope you're being sharp Bible readers here. Seeing in verse 22, we are in the active role. If you were just to answer this question grammatically, who is doing the purifying in verse 22? Not in verse 22. Yeah. Yes. Having purified your souls by what? 
<laughs> my obedience. Okay, so you start reading that, and you're like, whoa, what is this message, right? Um, how does this fit with all the other things in First Peter chapter 1? Because First Peter chapter 1 has been so God-active. Yes, we are passive. I mean, look again at verse 3. If it's, for me, it's on the same page. But again, I mean, it's helpful to remind ourselves of this. It says that He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Okay? He is in the active position. We're in the passive position. And now you get down to verse 22, and it's like, whoa, it's like we switched seats. How did this happen? Well, uh, we are called to submit to God, aren't we? We are called to submit to God in worship. We are called to wash our, wash our hands, you sinners. James chapter 4, draw close to God, He'll draw close to you. We are called to, um, as believers, perfect holiness, 2 Corinthians 7.1. It says that we are here together to perfect holiness together in this life. That is in view for the Christian. That is our focus for living. All right? And so Peter is really echoing a lot of these same thoughts when he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. We experience purification in our obedience to God. Look back up at chapter, or verse 2 with me, same chapter, of course, but back at verse 2, where it says in verse 1, we are elect or chosen by God. And then it says in verse 2, according to His foreknowledge, the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Why were we chosen? For obedience to Jesus Christ, the text says. We were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience of Jesus Christ. So for Peter, these ideas of salvation and obedience and sanct- or sanctification... They're not like these two opposing separate ideas. They are very much together because we were born again to obedience. We were born again to live a life set apart for God. We were born again to purity, to worship, to submission. These ideas are together, and Peter sees a fundamental moral change in the life of a believer. Now, when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, there will be a change of life because that's why God saved you. So if you say that God saved you and there is no change of life, God probably didn't save you, okay? I mean, we don't have like a chart. We're not like putting you up on one of those gas station charts to see how tall you are. Are you saved enough or whatever? That's not how this works. We're just saying, look, that's what we were saved for, for obedience. And there is a very real aspect as we are born again, God's work, not ours, where now we are cooperating with God in this life by submitting to Him And Peter goes as far to phrase it as saying, purifying our souls by our obedience to the truth. Language that a lot of times we're uncomfortable with. And depending on what we're trying to express, it might be rightly so that you're uncomfortable saying that. But of course, in the way Peter's saying it, this is true. There's an aspect in which we purify our souls by obedience to the truth toward what a sincere brotherly love, it says. Okay, so we weren't saved by obedience, but we were saved to obedience. So far in this chapter, in chapter 1, six times Peter has used the word either faith or belief. Six times in the first chapter. Heavy emphasis on believing because that's how we are saved, right? Remember back in chapter 10, uh, 
Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Peter's expressing the same gospel message. It is by faith and faith alone. It doesn't have works righteousness in view here in chapter 1. Peter is not in any way teaching that we are earning God's favor through our acts of righteousness. That's not Peter's message. Very heavy emphasis on faith alone. And there's not a formula being presented. It's not saying, do this, do this, do this to purify your souls. It's believe in Jesus. There's no formula, just Jesus. And then you go about purifying your soul and sanctification. Because you were saved for that purpose, to obedience. Not by obedience, but to obedience. Melissa. Yeah, whoever has this hope set on him purifies himself even as he is pure. If we are looking forward to the coming of Christ, if he is our blessed hope, and we look to the capital P, pure one, in this life, we purify ourselves even as he is pure. So you see that, that we're born again by faith and faith alone to obedience because we are obedient children. That's the title that Peter's given us in this chapter. You are an obedient child. So go be who you are. That's why you were saved, is to obey God as your Father. He is your judge, and He is also your Father. And it's not obedience toward, again, I can't emphasize this point enough, in verse 22, it's not obedience toward salvation, but obedience toward brotherly love, okay? Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. And then he gives us the command, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So this purification of our souls is toward a family love that we have in the church. It's toward brotherly, sisterly affection in the family of God. We were saved and not saved to be on our own, wandering, roaming the earth. You were put in a family. God doesn't have His children out all on their own. He brings them together in these local bodies. He gives us a family, and that's our expression of the brotherly love that He's given us. Where do we express what we were saved to do? Together. That's where we do it. We express our brotherly love that we were saved to show in the fellowship of the local church. And look at what it says our brotherly love should be. It's not just brotherly. But it should be what? What are some other adjectives in verse 22 that our love should be? Sincere, good. Fervent, good. And from what? From a pure heart, or I think the NASB just says from the heart, but um, there's some early manuscripts that have the word pure in there. Give us clean hands, give us pure hearts. We sang about that. We are to love sincerely from the heart and fervently. To love sincerely means non-hypocritically. The word literally means non-hypocritically. It's, it's the Greek word for hypocrite, and then it puts the uh, negative in front of it. So, live ahypocritically, meaning you don't act one way at church with your family and then act another way somewhere else, or you don't act this way toward this person in the, in the fellowship and then go around and then go gossip behind that person's back. Love unhypocritically, sincerely. And this is from the inside out. How do you live in a way that is genuine and sincere? It starts inside. Okay, if it's all external, 
it's inevitably going to lead to hypocritical living. But if it's inside where you have a true, sincere love for the fellowship, then in that way you can live sincerely. That's why he says from the heart or from a pure heart, from a place of obedience toward God. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So the one, uh, yes, Jesus presents that scenario of at judgment day, the one saying, didn't I do this in your name? Didn't I do that in your name? Didn't I do this in your name? There was never a root in the heart. And that's why we have to be so careful because only God knows hearts, right? There are lots of people out there who really do a good job acting as Christians. And we find that out all the time in headlines when some big-name person turns out had this going on or that going on, a major failure. We don't know. We can't give the type of assurance that only the Holy Spirit can impart. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Okay? Only God has omniscience in that realm. Um, so we have to just be so careful about saying anybody is or isn't. Um, but the fact remains, there are people among us, and this is the warning that Paul gives to Timothy, a pastor, they will come in like savage wolves in sheep's clothing. Um, there are people who play the part, but in their hearts, they just do not have a love for God. They do not have a love for the body. They hate God, and they hate God's people, and they end up tearing people apart. So, yeah, um, we have to examine ourselves in that way. That's the encouragement Paul gives in 2 Corinthians 13 to them is, you know, think about this. I mean, there's, again, there's no measuring chart and there's no like, oh, I've loved sincerely this much. Now I know for sure that I'm good or whatever. But you, you can spot in your heart if you're doing something out of hatred for God and His people or out of sincere love, okay? Uh, God is active in you. And God will show you things. If you're asking God from a sincere heart, show me, teach me. Um, he's faithful to do that and to use you, okay? We're to love sincerely, we're to love from the heart, and we're to love fervently. That's the other word that's in here. At least in the NASB, it's fervently. In the ESV, it's earnestly. And that is zealous. We're to be zealous for our brotherly love. And it's to be a constant zeal that we have. Okay, so let's uh, close out with a few questions here. As we think about being saved for obedience and expressed in brotherly love, um, is there any way to do this in isolation? <laughs> I'm here. Okay, yeah, right. Um, yeah, there's just no way. There's no way. To say, I'm a Christian living out my salvation, not showing love toward the brethren, not showing love to my brothers and sisters in Christ. You can't, you can't live out your salvation that way because we were saved to obey for a sincere brotherly love. Um, were you saved for yourself? Were you saved for only your benefit? Now, it's certainly true that you were saved for your benefit, right? You have eternal life. That's a benefit to you, okay? But that also is the benefit for who else? Who else are you a benefit to? Yeah, the church, the body of Christ. And even, I mean, this is beyond our text today, but it's in the Word of God uh, in other places, for the lost around you too. Yeah, 
You're an ambassador for Christ. And so it's not just that you were saved for you, but you were placed into a family to not just be a benefit for yourself and to receive benefits yourself, but to be a benefit to others as you love them with sacrificial and brotherly love. Uh, Do you think this is a good passage to turn to with someone who neglects the meeting of God's people? You think this is a good passage to turn to? You think you could do that? <laughs> because, yeah, I mean, we, we obviously think of the, uh, a lot of us will think of the Hebrews 10 passage. When we know someone's a believer and just hasn't gotten around to church for a while, and it's like, ah, oh, we don't want to make them feel like, okay, just go through the motions, okay? We never want to present it that way. You need to be going to church. You need to check this off your list, your Christian list, church, church, church. But at the same time, we need to be here, don't we? Because we need each other. And so we can think of Hebrews 10 that says, don't neglect the gathering of yourselves together. Don't neglect that, which is so true. It's a great passage. But add this one to your list too in 1 Peter 1, because it goes into great detail about how it's not just something we do, but how this is also what we were saved for. Okay? It's important that we get that. It's not just a thing you do because, hey, if you go, I'm sure you'll get something out of the sermon if, you know, Mark or Tyler's preaching, uh, you'll get something. But um, it's not just that. It's that this is what God did in causing you to be born again. He put you here in this family for the benefit of the family, to express Christ's love, washing each other's feet, serving one another. So it's a, a much more just a comprehensive picture. It's a bigger picture than just, well, you need to be in church. It's this is what God has done in saving you, okay? Joseph, did you have a thought or a question there? Yeah, 22 to 25, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, because, I mean, he goes in and, and after he says, uh, you know, you've purified your souls, he says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's our command. That's an imperative statement. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, comma, since you have been born again. Why should we love one another from a pure heart? Why should we love one another in brotherly love? Because you've been born again. That is why. That's the basis for going to church. I don't even really like that phrase. But that's, that's the basis for being involved in the fellowship, being active in God's family, is because He's caused you to be born again. What else? Say that again, what the first Oh, yeah, John 13. Yeah, a new commandment I give to you. John chapter 13. Yeah, that's exactly right. This is Jesus coming up on His uh, <clears throat> crucifixion. And He says, a new commandment I give to you. There He is with His disciples in John 13, verse 34, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Yep, that's the goal. Yes. Yeah, 1 John 3.23. And uh, let's see, there are a couple of places. 1 John 3, verse 23. This is His commandment. Okay, here we go. This is important. It's His commandment. Write it down. That we believe in the name of His Son... And that we love one another, just as He's commanded us. 
What is the Christian life? That you believe in Jesus and love one another. Okay, now there's, of course, a lot of detail in all that, but that's why we come together to study the Word of God, the Word that imparts life, the imperishable Word. We come back to learn from the Word and sharpen one another and to encourage one another to love and good deeds, even as we see the day approaching. Hebrews 10, 25, don't neglect gathering together, okay, because we are encouraging one another to love and good deeds. Jen. Yeah, it should be 25, 26, 25 and 26, I believe. Nope, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Anything else as we close? Joseph. Yeah, we got our quarterly visit from Joseph. Yeah. Yeah. It's like going to the gym. <laughs> oh. Yeah, amen. Mm, good. Appreciate that. Dean, do you have a thought too? Yes. Uh, we have this hope that's in jars of clay. <laughs> yeah, and we're wasting away on the outside, but inside, renewed day by day, right? So. Some of us are wasting away on the outside, but others, we're just like a fine wine. It just keeps getting better, right? <laughs> I'll let you guys determine who's who. Uh, but, okay, good stuff. Any, anything else before we close in prayer? Or any, oh, go ahead, Jim. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think the Hebrews 4.12 reference that I made earlier is probably our best place to go for a definition of what living means. Living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, discerning the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So it's active and it's living uh, in that it interacts with us in deep ways. Uh, there's, there are Greek words for change. There are Greek words for uh, becoming new or evolving, and those are not applied to the Word of God. Um, those are applied to us when it talks about if anyone's in Christ, he's a new, create, new creation. You've undergone a metamorphosis. That's a Greek word, metamorphosis. That happens to people when they come into contact with the living word that never changes. We are dead people who change into living people because the word of God, which never changes, has entered into our hearts. So, okay. All right. Any announcements before we stop? There's a nursery meeting Sunday, right, Jen? Nursery meeting. Anything else? Okay. Great. I'll pray and then we'll be done. Lord, we do thank you so much for your activity in our lives that you have worked in our hearts and minds, that the Word has been implanted and is growing and bearing fruit. We thank you that no matter where we are along our journey in Christ, that we have this shared eternal life that no one can take away. We have a life imperishable. We have a life that cannot be destroyed, that abides forever, that was given from You because we heard the message preached. Lord, make us 
faithful ambassadors, that we would take the word with us wherever we go the rest of our week, that we would uh, proclaim the excellencies of Christ wherever we are, all for your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.